as I was mentioning earlier, art is really powerful and art has the ability to elevate stories in a way that nothing else does. And so what we really wanted to accomplish was to invite people in to, to elevate the existing story so that, that um, a new brand could not erase it, right? So if we could really elevate that story so when people moved in, they didn't see it as a blank slate, but they saw it as something they were invited into. From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hey everyone, it's Jim Hodap. Welcome back to another episode of Livable City, and a very happy new year to you all. I can't believe that 2020 has finally arrived. As is so common for many people to do, the start of a new year is a time to intentionally think about the changes we all want to make in our lives for the year ahead. For me, one of the big ones I'm resolving to do is to finally connect with other Chicagoans who care deeply about getting involved more in their local neighborhood. So I've reached out already and I'm taking steps with what I'm hoping will become a monthly meetup and I'm beginning with some of the people that I've spoken with the most over Twitter. I don't know exactly what the main focus of this group is going to be yet, but I'm going in with the mindset that my first focus will be getting to know these people and seeing what's important to them. The main posture that sticks out in my mind is that of empathy. There's so much local healing that is needed, and the last thing this group needs to do is to come in with an agenda that's completely out of touch with other locals. So this overlaps really nicely with the conversation for today's episode. My guest today is Joanna Taft, Executive Director of the Harrison Center for the Arts in Indianapolis, and she challenges us with this concept of empathy through art to create a more livable neighborhood, a more livable city, and then as Joanna mentions, ultimately a more livable nation. Joanna is the Executive Director of the Harrison Center for the Arts in Indianapolis and co-founded Heron High School, a public college prep high school in the Heron-Morton neighborhood in Indy. She's extremely thoughtful and full of entrepreneurial energy, so I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with her. In particular, she'll get you motivated to take some action and get to know some people in your own neighborhood to start small, but to dream big. Now on to my conversation with Joanna. Hi, Joanna. Welcome to Livable City. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you here. Um, Tell us a little bit about you and your advocacy work with the Harrison Center for Arts in Indianapolis. So the Harrison Center is a studio center. We have 36 artists and operate six galleries, but we're not just a studio center. We actually provide cultural solutions to community problems. So an example would be after we open the Harrison Center and we're putting on very lively events and known for First Fridays and other really great parties, um, some of my artists started complaining and actually were telling me they needed to move to big cities, New York, LA, Chicago, because they needed art patrons, real art patrons, not the emerging patrons that uh, we had here in Indianapolis. And so um, that kind of surprised me and I wasn't really sure what to do, but that was our first um, venture of realizing that 
um, Indianapolis needed to be a world, wanted to be a world class city, and to be a world class city, we needed to have world class citizens. We needed art patrons. We needed voters. We needed uh, community leaders. We needed moms and soccer coaches and doctors and lawyers and artists to make our city great. And so we decided that we would provide a cultural solution to this community problem. And we started here in high school um, in our basement in 2006. We called it the lower level that year. And um, here in high school, we, we moved them across the street to the former John Heron Art Campus, um, which is now um, Heron School of Art and Design moved to IUPUI. So we took over their former campus and, um, and created a high school to grow world-class citizens. So that's a market for myself. These are art patrons. And, you know, I thought initially that it would take 20 years before we started seeing any benefit from growing this market. Um, but it, the benefits started immediately. Um, students actually started coming and buying Christmas presents for, you know, small amounts, but, but started valuing art and buying art and bringing their families. Um, and now we have so many graduates that now have professional positions and positions of influence that are coming and buying arts, uh, art, and our artists are doing very, very well here at the Harris Center. So that's one example. Um, we've we've continued that, and and um, when Indianapolis was kind of struggling with the abandoned housing challenge in 2008, they they put out a map that kind of showed all the abandoned um, houses. It was actually. If you're an artist, you looked at the map, it actually was kind of beautiful. It's almost like a point, pointillism piece of art. But when you realize what each of those dots on the map meant, um, you know, it was a public safety issue. It was a um, education issue. It was a social justice issue. These were all abandoned houses that were affecting our neighborhoods in many ways. We decided to start a new program um, through the arts to address that um, that issue of abandoned housing and to strengthen neighborhoods. So we, we opened the City Gallery, Indy's Urban Living Center. And the City Gallery was a five-year project that showed um, place-based art to tell stories of these neighborhoods and to elevate those neighborhoods in the public eye, bring attention to them. And then we also offered concierge services. So you've been to a hotel and you've been helped by a, a concierge. We offered a city concierge who helped connect people to culture, community, and place. And so these are two of many examples of how the Harrison Center has uh, looked at a community problem and come up with a, a cultural solution. Um, the, the City Gallery was a very successful project. We helped the city um, be successful with their neighbor, neighborhood stabilization funds that they received from the federal government and helped five, five neighborhoods stabilize. And, and from that, we saw a wave of um, people moving back downtown. Um, and then another issue came up. Can you imagine, Jim, what that might have been? Gentrification. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A word that uh, many in Indy didn't even know about. Right. And so all of a sudden they found out I was a gentrifier. You know, I thought I was a good person that was strengthening my neighborhood and strengthening abandoned neighborhoods. And then all of a sudden I realized that, um, that, that there, you know, was people were really worried about gentrification here, even in Indianapolis. And, um, and that's where we had been doing creative placemaking out in neighborhoods to add vitality. And that's when I started rethinking um, what we were doing with creative placemaking. So as we were doing creative placemaking, um, I started noticing up in the 38th and Illinois area that there were neighbors that were actually nervous about our presence. And I thought that was kind of odd because they seemed afraid that our presence was going to make them lose their home. And they were homeowners and longtime residents. 
they didn't have mortgages, you know, they were, they had good, stable jobs. And um, through that experience, I, I began to realize that they weren't afraid of economic gentrification at all. They were actually afraid of cultural gentrification. And that was a term that I kind of started, I kind of started to use. Have you ever heard that term before, cultural gentrification? I have not, actually, no. So this was a huge awakening for me that, um, that there are two forms of gentrification. Um, there's, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about economic gentrification where rents go up and, or taxes go up and that puts pressure on people and, and they move out of neighborhoods. But there's a whole nother uh, force in gentrification and that's when the story of a neighborhood is erased. And that's when people can actually own their home and be economically fine but they feel alone in their own neighborhood because the neighborhood has changed. The name of the neighborhood maybe even has changed, has been rebranded. And, and the, the traditions and the stories of the neighborhood um, are erased because the new people moving in, they don't intend to do this in many, many cases. They move in and they, they don't know anything. They think of the neighborhood as a blank slate. And so they are eager to be pioneers and they're eager to, um, to build a neighborhood that, that they feel doesn't exist. Yeah. And so the work of the Harris Center now in neighborhoods is about elevating, is about fighting cultural gentrification. I, I really, I have to confess to you, I can't do anything about economic gentrification. I think market forces um, are very strong and I really don't know what to do about that. But I do believe that the arts are powerful and that when you work with art, um, Things change. They, for good or for bad, things are going to change. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we are trying to be very careful about not using, um, not, not um, misunderstanding the power of the arts, and being very intentional with how we use art. And so now um, our focus is on the the hillside neighborhood in what's called kind of the Monon Sixteen area, and we are actually. Um, working very hard to um, elevate the story of that neighborhood and to get to know the long-term neighbors and to elevate their stories. Yeah, so we're working in what is called the Monon 16 neighborhood, and that is where um, it's, that area is where the Kennedy King and um, Hillside neighborhoods come together. So it's part King Park and it's part Martindale Brightwood. And our work there has been to get ahead of gentrification. It's a neighborhood that is you know, there are 400 vacant lots. It's a, it's a neighborhood that developers had their eye on. You know, we started working there four years ago and we knew that we needed to get in there quickly and, and, and try to um, address cultural gentrification because we, we saw economic, economic gentrification coming. So um, the first thing we did was we started interviewing all the neighbors to find out their stories and to ask them what their hopes and dreams were. And as we interviewed them, we found that they were talking about the good old days all the time. I mean, they just had so many stories and they just longed for the good old days. And it's kind of funny as I listened to them tell these stories in my mind, I was actually, um, my mind kind of went to a reenactment. Have you been to Connor Prairie or to some kind of a civil war reenactment? And, you know, they act out the past. We've all seen that. Seen that. Yeah. Yes. My mind was kind of playing this little reenactment of the past, and I and for a half second I thought, oh, we ought to we ought to do a reenactment. We ought to take over a three block stretch of the street and and reenact the past. Wouldn't that be fun? That would make everybody feel really good. But almost as soon as I said that, I realized that 
that was our terrible idea. The past well, really wasn't that good, <laughs> that good. You know, the good old days were not really that good. And so um, the, the, the inequities that we deal with today were even worse in the past. So um, we were kind of talking about how could we use theater instead? And I'm not a theater person, by the way. I don't really have any experience with theater until um, a couple of years ago. And so the, the thought was, what if we could have theater help us model what a just and equitable world would look like? What is a neighborhood that's healthy, a neighborhood that's equitable, a neighborhood that has opportunity for all? We were kind of struggling with what would that be? And um, one of my friends blurted out, that's a pre-enactment. It's not a reenactment. It's a pre-enactment. Yeah, just like a, like a prequel, right, to a movie. That's right. And so we, we, we pre-enacted um, the actors acted out a world that ought to be. So the set de- was, we partnered with professional theater and the set designers built 11 temporary buildings on the vacant lots and they activated the vacant storefronts. And then the actors acted out the hopes and dreams of the neighbors. Remember I said, we interviewed them and we asked the neighbors for, um, you know, hopes and dreams. And I think we got 60 common hopes and dreams. So we actually acted those out and people invited everybody to an event called pre-enact indie, which for one day you could try on a, a way, a new world, a neighborhood that ought to be. And um, we were going to do that just one year, but yep. now it's been three. <laughs> so it was a, a raging success. A raging success. And I mean, not without its challenges, but um, it's been very inspiring. The, the longtime neighbors have felt um, honored. Um, the, the, the new neighbors have felt, you know, inspired, wanting to learn more about the story of the neighborhood, wanting to enter in. And the, uh, the residents that used to live there that had been successful and moved out to the suburbs that came back just felt really proud of their neighborhood. It was a neighborhood that they, they hadn't felt proud of yeah. in a while. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And how do you, how do you think, um, art has really come into this, right? right. Um, you were talking about, um, a little bit of art previously um, earlier in the conversation. How how does it inform pre-enact indie? So as I was mentioning earlier, art is really powerful and art has the ability to elevate stories in a way that nothing else does. And so what we really wanted to accomplish was to invite people in to, to elevate the existing story so that, that um, a new brand could not erase it, right? So if we could really elevate that story, so when people moved in, they didn't see it as a blank slate, but they saw it as something they were invited into, so they could help continue that story. And so we've, mm. used, we've used art to do that. That's we've done powerful. that in different ways. We did paintings of long-term residents, and we were working on this project, and we were in, painting a lot of the matriarchs of the neighborhood, and we were calling them the matriarchs of the Monon. And somehow by accident, um, we painted a guy and um, we're like, oh no, that just messed with the, the name, the matriarchs of the Monon. It can't be the matriarchs and the patriarch. That doesn't work. So we needed something gender neutral and, you know, restraints always lead to innovation. And so we were struggling with what we were going to call this. And all of a sudden the word gratriarch came to us. So these are the gratriarchs, these long-term residents that have invited us into their story. And so we have a new program and series called the Gratriarchs. So the Gratriarchs, the, the, they would never say they're the greatest neighbors, but um, we think they're pretty great. <laughs> and so we've done these amazing um, six-foot-tall 
six by four foot portraits that we hang on the side of vacant buildings in the neighborhood. And then um, we um, have created some music videos with them. Um, and we use those to tell, to elevate that story, you know, blogs and music videos and social media posts. Um, but we also real, after we got to know these neighbors, we realized that we needed to um, add some more programming. And so we have uh, great art gatherings. These are monthly events that are to reduce social isolation. So a lot of these great are in their seventies and eighties and they're amazing people, but they're retired. And a lot of them, have lost a lot of their neighbors and um, a lot of their friends and are, are struggling with ways to connect. And so um, providing these yeah. social events um, that, that help us learn more about the yeah. neighborhood, but also um, give them um, an opportunity to reduce social isolation has been pretty great. So that that's one example. We've done public art. We've done, um, we do, we have a porch party initiative, which for us is kind of performance art. I think, um, I don't know. Do you know that I've been porching every Sunday since 2007? Did you know that, know that about me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we were as we were talking on Facebook, you were you were telling me a little bit about that, and that that re yeah, piqued so my interest. I the the porching has been very meaningful for me and for my family, and I, I realized that um, when I'm porching, I feel connected, and that when you're connected, you're healthy, and if we could take that to neighborhoods and encourage people to porch that would make them healthier. And when you have that happening across a neighborhood, the neighborhood is healthier. And then when you have that happening across neighborhoods in a city, the city is healthier. And if I can jump in, when you say connected to your neighborhood, what do you mean exactly there? Because I, I don't think that's as obvious to our listeners as it is to you. You know, I use that. That's a good question. I use that word connected a lot. So I think I started by saying, I feel connected. I feel like I'm in relationship. I feel like I have resources. I feel like I am known. I feel like I am loved. So those are the ways that I personally feel connected when I'm porching, when I'm in a, I, I porch with 12 people on a you know weekly basis. Um, six are the same people and six are people that um, I kind of mix, you know, I add different people in to, to introduce the porching. So um, when people are porching in a neighborhood and they're porching with their neighbors, they're feeling more connected to their neighborhood. They're feeling known. They're feel, they have resources. If there's a problem, they have people they can go to. Um, we can solve community. When you know other neighbors, you can solve community problems together. Yeah. When you're isolated, when you're behind your privacy fence, when you're sitting on your back patio, when you're driving into your attached garage, when you're sitting in your air-conditioned home in front of your TV or computer, um, those are things that, you know, those are modern, great modern innovations that have helped us in many ways, but they've also really hurt us. And so uh, we need to be countercultural and we need to find ways to connect. And fortunately, urban neighborhoods were actually designed to connect people. That We have sidewalks, we have porches. What yeah. better ways to force us to connect? Right. Absolutely. And something I like to ask all of my guests, and you uh, segued right into it uh, very nicely, is I, I think you're starting to say a little bit of what you think a very livable place is. But can you say a little bit more about that, how porching really defines a livable place? And then also, what else do you think defines a livable place? 
Okay, so this is gonna. This is probably you've probably never had this answer before. You're probably wanting somebody to, to talk about you know complete streets and walkability and that kind of thing. No, it's um, whatever you want, actually. Okay. So, and, and I, I believe all that. But um, my answer, and this is what I've realized over the last two years, is that a livable place is where people are known and people are loved. Mm, so I love it. Think about um, gentrification. Um, a neighborhood that is gentrified, that is not livable anymore for some people, right? Some people would say that. Um, that is a neighborhood where the story isn't known, the story isn't loved. You've erased the story, you've rebranded the neighborhood. You know, you've you the new people have have moved in and, and changed the narrative, so the story is not known and loved, and the long term residents are not known and loved, because if they're known and loved, they're going to be protected, they're going to be cherished, you're going to find a way for them to stay. And so I've, I've been thinking about that knowing and loving and trying to apply that to lots of other areas of my life um, mm-hmm. and thinking about as I, I think about what is a livable neighborhood, it's a place where neighbors are known and loved. And what do they need to be known and loved? They need to be connected. They need to know their neighbors. What are some ways that we can do that? Um, it's by porching. It's by providing third places, you know, where people can connect. Um, lots of different other things, but that's kind of the way I've been approaching it recently. Yeah, absolutely. So you would say it's not so much so like highlighting what is built per se, right? And and certain types of things like you were saying, complete streets or does that bike lanes and that kind of stuff, but it's more, does it connect people together? Are they by design, forced is a strong word, but you know, um, by design, able to connect with with each other, able to run into each yeah, other, yeah. able to to choose without having to without it being too much work to intersect each other. Is that right? The, the, it's not impossible to be known and loved when you have bad design, but it's really hard. <laughs> it's yeah. really hard. Yeah. So think about, <laughs> you know, think about your suburban neighbor that um, you know, doesn't have doesn't doesn't isn't forced to have interaction with their neighborhood. They can actually really live in isolation and not know their neighbors. Yes. So how does how does art factor into that for a livable place? Art is one of the ways that we can know and love. Um, art can can um, art is how we we can communicate. Art is how we can um, create public conversations. Art is how we can um, communicate our emotions, our concerns, um, bring people together. So my, our first Friday events where people gather to. Um, to see the new shows are one of the most powerful community building tools that I have. It is from first Friday that we started here in high school, that we found the board members to start um, here in high school. It is from first Friday that we um, came up with this idea of using that, that crowd and the power of art to, to create public conversations about abandoned housing and community and public conversations about neighborhoods that had been um, forgotten and hadn't had investment. Yeah, absolutely. And for and for our listeners that don't know, First Friday, what what is First Friday? Uh, first Friday is um, it's the first Friday of the month where we encourage all the galleries in town to open up 
and be kind of on the same schedule. Um, and so we have at the Harrison Center, we have six galleries that we open with new shows. We have um, 36 artists that have studios here that open their their studios. You can wander and explore our 65,000 square foot building, get lost, which is actually wine and getting confused as part of our business plan. Because if you if you do that, <laughs> people become putty in your hands and they suddenly buy art. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, so anyway, that, that the, the first Friday gathering is something that again connects people. When people people feel connected, there's there's a real power there in what you can do for your community. Yeah, and and from the sounds of it, that's kind of the concept of porching again, right? right. right? Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, I think you've touched on something here that I haven't had any guests say yet, right? But it's something that I firmly believe in as well that cities and towns and these places that we live in close proximity to each other, they're really not the end goal, right? They're, they're a means to connecting each other and that makes a livable place. So I know there's a lot of folks out there that, that like to say that they prefer a very anonymous place. They can come and they can go and they can do their thing and they can have their busy lives. But, um, and I, I think some people are probably pretty serious about that, but, uh, I think for the vast majority of people, they've, lost the art, so to speak, of being connected to each other where they live. And so that's why your definition of a livable place is super powerful. Yeah. You know, the small towns right now are trying to act, are trying to show that they, when I, when I go visit small towns and I've done some consulting with small towns, I feel like they're trying to actually be a city. They're trying to um, offer the things that a city offers and my response is first be a small town first do the things a small we when we think in our hearts about a small town we think of people porching we think of people knowing their neighbors and the sad thing is that modernization has even affected our small towns and even our small towns has have lost that that small town feel yeah that's really and so i really believe that for you know i live in indiana and i feel like if the small towns in Indiana got really good at being a small town first, that there would be all kinds of people from the city moving to the small towns. Oh, I agree. I, I think about um, other countries that have been around for much longer than the United States, and they have lots of small towns that have been small for hundreds of years. Well, how did they do that, right? And why are they still small today? And why do we, why do we all love to go to them to visit them, right? If they're if they were trying to be like, you know, I'll take like a French example, right? So if a small French town uh, was trying to be Paris, like, you know, what, what good is that? But we still, yeah, we still want to go to these small French um, towns. Exactly. And why is that? And there's something in our hearts that are, Mm -hmm. that we want to experience what is real, what is authentic, what has not been altered by the branders or the um, marketers. Yes, exactly. Um, so many people might listen to this conversation and say, Joanna, you know, that, that sounds great. Uh, connecting people sounds wonderful, but you know, it sounds like a pretty utopian, um, idealistic type of thing for today's age. You know, people are busy, they're on the go. They don't have time to know their neighbors. Um, you know, how do you, uh, how do you take this, um, into something that's doable, into something that seems realistic? Well, I think that you can remember, first of all, that you can start small. Um, I mean, my my world is 
overconnected. Like, and that's just, I'm an extrovert. I just, I just thrive on it. So for instance, on my Sunday, here's my Sunday, for example, on Sunday, I walk to church. I live in the city. I get to walk to church. How, how fun is that? Right. Then Sunday afternoon, I porch <laughs> from three to five thirty. Um, then at five thirty, I hop off the porch exactly at five thirty, and I walk to one of my neighbor's houses because there are ten of us, ten families that are in a supper club. And then I have, you know, I I eat with my with my neighbors, and so that's on Sunday. I, I gain a lot of weight on Sundays. Um, because I have a donut, I have a donut, a Long's donut at church, which are amazing. Tinker coffee and a Long's donut, and then you know I, I just eat my whole way through the day. And so um, that not everybody wants that, and even my my husband's an introvert, and so you know he kind of has to gear up for Sundays because he, he knows what's coming. <laughs> um, but so not everybody's going to do that. But I would say, um, really take an inventory: Are you healthy? Do you think you're healthy? I'm just curious. Are you healthy? You know, um, do you, are you connected? And my guess is that everyone in their hearts wants to be more connected, wants to be known, wants to be loved. People might be afraid of it. Um, but I think that that's a human longing. So, um, I would just say, start with something small and, um, it could be as simple as, um, sometimes when I go to the grocery store, um, I'll invite somebody that I know, um, needs a little bit of extra attention or, or I, I just invite them to go with me. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to add anything else to my calendar. I can simply invite them to go to the grocery store with me. Does that make sense? That's amazing. So um, there are little simple ways that you can just add, include somebody in your life without starting a new program. Yeah. And it's very, it's very doable bite-sized pieces. But, but you said like people, the other thing I want to say is the crazy thing is, um, the, it's not, it's utopian in, in the fact that, well, I guess I just want to say it's not a dream. It's measurable. Yeah, absolutely. So the things that we're seeing, like the pre-enact indie program in, um, in Moon on 16, we're having measurable success. Yeah. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit more about that. But the, the pre-enactment program is not just a one day program. You cannot pre-enact yeah. a just and equitable neighborhood into being through a one day theater event, right? And so we pre-enact 365 days a year. And right. a neighborhood, um, you know, we've heard of gentrified neighborhoods, we've heard of um, distressed neighborhoods. There will never be a pre-enacted neighborhood. There can only be pre-enacting neighborhoods. You have to pre-enact every day. Um, it will never end. You have to mm. choose every day to, to um, to include, you have to choose every day to love. You have to choose every day to elevate mm. the story, to not erase the story. Yeah. So really, you're using art there, and and the art of acting out and and showing what can be as a example of right. a rhythm that you would like people to get into, right? Um, and and embrace and participate in and put their stamp on it, right? Right. And so because we, um, we had to do these a variety of programs that uh, targeted toward new neighbors to invite them into the story, um, we can actually count the number of neighbors that have moved into the neighborhood and the number of neighbors that, um, that have reflected on this and have given us response. We're actually going through an evaluation right now, which is very exciting. And so um, we're do we've committed to this program for five years because we want to know 
that we're not just making people feel good. We want to know that we're actually producing measurable change. And so um, I'm sure that there are going to be areas where we fail, but but the initial results are that we are actually making measurable change. So an example would be six months into starting to plan our first pre-enactment, and this is when the neighborhood really, there were, there was no functioning business that I was aware of on six, on that stretch of 16th Street. Um, later on, I found out there was there was one that I didn't even realize they were there, but they were there, but kind of hidden. But a, a, um, a vacant building was purchased by a trendy uh, restaurant. And my heart sank because here we were trying to um, curb cultural gentrification. And the very first thing that happens is a gentrifying restaurant with, you know, expensive drinks and expensive menu comes in. And, um, mm. and I was, I was just kind of heart sick. And, and so yeah. I, I went and I talked to the restaurant and I kind of put my hands on my hips, um, proverbial hands on my hips and, and said, how are you going to love your neighbors? How are you going to, um, uh, change your business plan to be more equitable? How are you going to pre-enact? And to be honest with you, they looked at me like I was crazy. Hmm. But within a month, they came back to me and they said, we are going to partner with the Edna Martin Christian Center and we are going to hire a local. And they did it. Wow. And I went back to that restaurant repeatedly and saw people that I knew from the neighborhood that were hired. The, the pay, this company owned two restaurants and they um, shared, they hired a neighbor to be a grand granddaughter of a neighbor to be the pastry, the pastry chef. And now we hire her to be the celebrity pastry chef to come in. And we have a kind of a community and artist um, cookie, Christmas cookie um, program. And she comes in and, and works with us on that. So that's kind of fun. Wow. So that's like, that's a measurable change. And yeah. I can, I can list multiple, um, every single business that has moved into the neighborhood we've met with and had that conversation and had that kind of response. That's amazing. Like, I just want to reflect on that a little bit of how, different that is than if you um had just seen that restaurant moved in uh move in and you didn't say anything to them and they participated but they wouldn't have necessarily been any more connected to the neighborhood nor the neighborhood connected to it and you know maybe their business wouldn't have been as strong maybe they would have failed maybe they would have changed and altered the course of where the neighborhood actually wants to go and so you start to get this built up um, tension, which I think you were alluding to, alluding to before about, um, you know, what new people want versus who's already there and maybe feeling like they're getting bulldozed over. Yeah, it's, um, it's complicated. Sometimes it's, to be honest with you, it's both exciting and scary. So who, who am I to go to a business and tell them they need to change their business plan to be more equitable, right? What do I know about their business? What do I know about what they what needs to happen? Yeah. So in in for every business, um, there needs to be room for them to do it in a different way. So an example is that you know that restaurant um, hired local, um, but their their menu prices are still high. It's still not a restaurant that the long term neighborhoods go to. Okay. Um, but they are high, they are bringing jobs to the neighborhood. Um, another example was a. Um, a new pizza place that moved in and the pizza we thought, Oh, this is great. It's going to be really accessible. Anybody can go to it. And two day, three days before our second pre-enact indie program, um, this business painted a new mural and I was driving down the street and I saw this mural and I almost had an accident. It was a mural of a big face of a, it was a big blonde white woman with 
blue eyes. It was just a face of her. And she was saying, thank you. And why did my heart stop? It stopped because this is a historically African-American neighborhood. Um, A new business is moving in. And I was afraid that the neighborhood was going to look at that and say, you're not here for us. You're here for the new people moving in. Um, At Preenact Indy, which was just three days away, um, this restaurant was going to be right next to the Black Cowboys who were coming for the event, right across the street from a historically Black elementary school that was having a reunion, and across from a gospel fest that, that was part of Preenact Indy at a long at an African American church. And so I was just really afraid at the message that was sending. And so once again, I pick up the phone, I call this, the owner, I'm like, "Hey, thank you so much for bringing art to the neighborhood. That's really awesome." just curious if you're going to add a person of color to that mural. And he's like, no, he's like, it, it's just art. It doesn't mean anything. It Ooh. doesn't mean anything. And, and, and this is where I knew that um, this is where I need to invite them in to pre-enact. I need to invite them yes. to think in a different way and to behave yes. differently. And so what I told him was, this is how it's making people feel. And this is how it could make people feel. And he had never considered that. No one had ever taken the time to talk to him about that. And so, you know, this was very complicated because the mural had been approved, the design had been approved by the city and the um, artists that did it had been from out of town and had actually actually come and gone by that point I talked to him. And so it was almost impossible for him to do anything before that big pre-enactment. But he did, he changed it. And he darkened the skin and he, um, we were like, is that person Greek? Is, you know, I'm not really sure if they're, what, what race that person is. And the hair was blue and he kind of altered it. And then this summer he added another mural. He added an addition to the building with another mural and it's a white hand and a black hand joining together. Oh, wow. So that's an example. And I have so many of them of all these new businesses that are moving in. And we're doing this with the, um, the residents as well. So I have so many examples of how we're inviting people to change their behavior. I've learned that people don't like to be told that they're doing something bad. They like yes. to be invited to yes. a new way of, of acting. Right. I mean, cause we all do the best that we know how to, right. And some of us are tuned into one thing and others tuned into another thing. And so like when we come together, that's the intersection of a bunch of things that some of us know, some of us don't know. And so empathy, empathy and inviting others in, like you said, is super critical to actually coming together peacefully. Yeah. What would you say uh, to folks uh, who want to get, who want to get involved where they live? How how do they get started? Um, I think the first thing would be to meet their immediate neighbors. Um, The second thing would be to find out what their neighborhood association is and, and, um, you know, go to that. So I think the, the point is get connected and what it, and find the best way to get connected in, in, in your neighborhood. Um, I think that once you know, when you meet neighbors and you begin to understand the challenges, um, then if you're the type of person that likes to start things, you can start planning um, events and programs that help people get connected more and help them rally together so they can resolve some of these challenges. If you're not the kind of person that, that does that easily, it's it's pretty easy to just attend a, a, a neighborhood association meeting and to be aware of what's going on and be active on the neighborhood listserv um, and to be available to help. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Um, what, what originally made you feel like 
you could actually lead some change where you live and what, what prompted that? Oh my goodness. I don't think I've ever felt qualified for anything. Um, <laughs> I just can't help myself. <laughs> I'm pathologically helpful. I don't know. Um, you know, when I started here in high school, it wasn't because I felt like I was qualified to do that. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't have an art background and I started an art center. I don't have a, um, education background and I started the high school and what I, what I learned and I could go on. Um, but what I've learned, like I was scared to the core of my being the first year and a half of starting here in high school. I mean, to the core all night long, ask my husband, I was so scared. Um, but what I learned was here in high school didn't start because I was smarter than anyone else. It didn't start because I was more qualified than anybody else. It started because I had an idea and I didn't give up. And so that to me is, is don't worry about whether you're qualified or whether you're um, the best leader in the room. Um, Cause I certainly wasn't the best leader and made many mistakes, but um, I, I felt like I had a calling. I felt like it was the right thing to do. And when you, when you feel like you have a calling, when you feel like there's something that you need to do for your city or for your community, it gives you passion. It gives you courage and it gives you perseverance. And so you don't yes. give up. So important. Yeah. I remember when I first got started, um, listeners are familiar with my strong indie stuff. And the first time I was in front of the, uh, Indianapolis Historic Preservation Commission, um, where the city council meets. There were a lot of people in there. And I stood up and I was advocating for a particularly strong um, development that I wanted to see get approved. And standing in front of there, I was terrified. But uh, nobody was saying I had to do that except inside Mm -hmm. that said I had to help with this because I want to see Indianapolis be better. And turns out, you know, I was also on TV. I didn't even know it. And somebody saw me and they said, you look so nervous. I was like, really? Was it, was it that obvious? (laughs) But, um, but you know, just to play off of what you said, um, if you have a calling, if you feel like change needs to happen, you just gotta, you just gotta start doing it. Yeah, exactly. So why, why do you think it's critical for, um, everyone to get involved? Why not just, um, say voting's good enough or, my city council leaders got it, you know, why, why do we all have to get involved? Well, we're all needed and things don't stay the same. Things either get better or get worse. (laughs) And so if you're not going to do anything, things are going to get worse. So is that what you want? (laughs) I mean, I mean, mean, those are the options for me. So I don't think I have an, I don't have the option of just of not getting involved. And I think that it's going to take more than me to do it. Right, right. But, you know, I see so-and-so in my neighborhood doing work like you, Joanna. Why do I need to uh, also do something, you know? Well, so I don't think that we all have to do the same job, right? And there are people that are the gatherers and there are the people that are the the detailed people and they're, you know, we all have different gifts. And so I think it's important to to, um, understand that we're all wired differently and not to judge people. Um, You know, I've I think it's common for neighborhood uh, cleanup days to kind of judge who's out there and who's raking and who's not. And um, I think that we, we need to recognize that people need to help in a lot of different ways um, to build community. And um, maybe we do a better, we need to do a better job of sharing community leaders need to do a better job of sharing the types of 
ways that people can help rather than just saying it's through that community work day. So I think that um, we all have things we're good at. We all have things that, um, that we're not good at. And I think it's a matter of, of using your own, your personal gifts as you're wired. Absolutely. I think that's a really key point too, because if you try and do something that somebody else says is a good idea, but you don't, you don't buy into it, it doesn't resonate with you in your gut. I don't think you're going to be able to actually um, stay the long course, which is what's needed in making change where we live. Um, So as we come to a close on this conversation, do you want to leave our listeners with any final thoughts? So I talked about pre-enactment. I talked about how I went around and, and, ask the business people to pre-enact. One of the things that happened to me during that first year was I realized that I needed to pre-enact. I personally needed to pre-enact. So here I am running around telling other people they need to pre-enact, but um, there were still some things that I needed to work on myself. So here's an example. Um, My husband came, my husband is brilliant um, and he's kind of an absent-minded professor and he doesn't check his cell phone often. Like my, my hand is shaped like my cell phone, you know, I'm checking it all the time. Um, So my husband came home late one night and I had gone through all the stages of grief. I thought first I was mad, then I thought he was dead and then I was angry. Like I just went through all the, you know, all the different, all the different stages. So when he came home, I was, you know, like okay, we've been married almost 30 years at that point. And, you know, um, you know, can't you tell me when you're going to be late? I could have like ruined the entire evening um, because he's never going to change. Right. He's, he's, I married him because he's the way he is and he's just not wired to be on his phone all the time, which is good. He reads books, you know, he's thoughtful. (laughs) He does these other things. And so, um, so I stopped and I said to him, I'm going to pre-enact and I'm going to, I'm going to change the course that I was taking this evening because I actually love you and I want to hang out with you tonight and I'm going to pre-enact and I'm going to respond to this in a different way. And that was a kind of a game changer moment for me. And now I, we've been doing pre-enact indie for over, we've done it three times, but we've been working on it for four years. And I think about pre-enacting every day. And I think about how I relate to my, I'm a type A personality. I want my employees to be working all the time. I want them to get things done. You know, I come in first thing in the morning, I want to start barking orders. So I think about my kids, you know, I think about all of my relationships. How can I pre-enact? How can I respond in a different way? And um, we want things to change, but our neighborhoods are never going to change. Our, our, first of all, our, our country is never going to change unless our cities change and our cities are never going to change unless our neighborhoods change, right? But our neighborhoods are going to never change unless our hearts change as people. And so how, and that we have to start pre-enacting in our own hearts. And that is the thing that, um, that I think about now all the time and has really been meaningful in this phase of my career of how I could be kinder and gentler um, and not so task oriented and get it done um, oriented. So, so I think that's, that's my challenge for people to think about how can you pre-enact? How can you respond in a different way? How can you bring more justice and more mercy to this world? Mm, such good words. So if folks want to uh, find out more about pre-enact Indie, the Harrison Center for the Arts, or just about you, where can they find you online? 
you can go to the harrisoncenter.org and there's you can get information on all our different programs there, including Pre-Nact Indy. Um, you can uh, follow me on social media, Joanna Beatty Taft on Facebook or Joanna Taft on Instagram or Joanna Taft on, on Twitter. Um, and the Harrison Center is also on those um, those channels as well. Excellent. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Joanna, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. And thanks for the work that you do. I love so many of the ideas that Joanna talked about in this episode, like art elevating stories like nothing else or her idea of porching. Joanna wasn't literally saying that you need a front porch in order to do this, although there is something really connecting and inviting about a front porch. But to live your daily life instead with relational intentionality, it's really important to slow down and connect with folks in your neighborhood on a regular cadence. The concept of pre-enacting is also a super powerful one that I really like, and it's one to think deeply about in two different ways. First is the literal one in how Joanna expresses this in Indy. Could you bring together people who live near each other to pre-enact everyone's local story together as a tangible expression in the neighborhood? What could you discover together if you did something like pre-enact Indy in your own neighborhood? If you're interested in learning more about this and what it looks like, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Or how about this? How about in the more personal sense of pre-enacting? How can you express something that's deep within you while still being in connection with someone who is relationally close and important to you? To put it another way, how can you both live more deeply into who you are while being pulled closer to someone meaningful in your own life? I invite you to join in the conversation on our Facebook group, which as always, you can find in the show notes. Another way is to look for the episode release announcement on Twitter and Instagram at livable underscore city. Your thoughts help shape and keep livable city moving forward in interesting and meaningful ways. So I warmly welcome you to participate in the conversation as we continue to grow a community around making more livable neighborhoods, towns, and cities. Thank you so, so much for helping me launch livable city in 2019 and being a part of it. And I'm really excited to see what's possible for this year in 2020. Remember, as you venture out to meet people and take actionable steps, learn, listen, and then lead. Thanks, everybody.